This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 589, and we welcome Tom Yacobellis and Rusty Amarante from the Belfour Group. This one we're calling Belfour Ichiban, Managing High-Profile Coronavirus Projects. It's going to be a fun show. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason IAQ Radio continues to be free. Uh, Let's start with our newest sponsor, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA just last week announced their new slogan, Healthier Workplaces, A Healthier World. Learn more at AIHA.org. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at IAQA.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at particlesplus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now... Here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Darren Hudima, Pure Clean in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who was first to identify Emilio Marcus Palma as the first documented person ever to be born on a continent. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for today, Friday, June 12, 2020, has been sponsored by Idea is a solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. Name the very contagious virus causing gastrointestinal illness associated with cruise ships. Back to you, Joe. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do Tom's intro, Cliff, and then maybe you could do Rusty. Tom Yacobellis okay. is the Director of National Operations for Belfour Mechanical, an international HVAC remediation, restoration, and diagnostic firm with 80 locations nationwide. He is also the founder of Ducts International and has 38 years' experience in the design, installation, and restoration of HVAC systems and 29 years specifically in the HVAC remediation industry and building diagnostics. Tom is also a Lifetime Achievement Award from NADCA and IAQA. He's also an IAQA past president. Rusty Amarani, Certified Restore, has over 40 years of experience in the restoration industry. He's Director of Operations for Belfour Property Restoration the global leader in disaster recovery and president of Belfour Franchise Group, 
a leading national franchiser of service brands, including 1-800-WATER-DAMAGE, Ducks International, and Hoods International, and Packouts. All right, you gentlemen, go. welcome. Good to have you both back with us. And uh, this is an interesting topic, interesting show with all the news on, you know, coronavirus and the COVID-19. And um, you two have been involved in a lot of cleaning and restoration of, of big projects, probably high-profile projects. This, though, was a contagious disease outbreak that, you know, they've, they've had these on cruise ships before, but this one was a little new in that it was the, the COVID-19. Um, Rusty, maybe you could tell us first a little bit about some of the past projects you've had similar to this, if you've had them. Yeah, sure. You know, we've, we've done uh, cruise ships for many, many years, uh, mostly related to noroviruses. Um, but we've done them as a result of fire damage as, as well. And uh, we've, we've got a lot of experience worldwide working on, on cruise ships. And what, what's unique, Tom, about working in a, you know, cruise ship's like a little city almost. And um, I would imagine there's, there's some unique challenges to working in a cruise ship. Can you kind of first put the size of the ship into perspective for our audience? Yeah, well, cruise ships are enormous. So uh, this one was 3,000 passengers, 2,000 employees, so 5,000. That's actually larger than a lot of small cities in the United States. Uh, so a total of basically uh, 5,000 rooms, uh, or and they double up for the employees. This is a massive ship uh, broken up into multiple zones, seven zones. Uh, and it's enormous, 14 stories high standing from the waterline. You know, you, you deal a lot with mechanical systems, Tom. And you, you mentioned when we talked before about the, the vertical versus horizontal setup. You mentioned it's in seven sections. Can you talk a little bit more about the, how the mechanicals are set up for that? Yeah, in a cruise ship, on the cruise ships, you would think that they would be, you know, level seven, level eight, level nine, and the air handlers would take care of that. The cruise ships are divided up into zones, and the zones are dictated by the fire escape zones or the water compartment zones. So when you look at a cruise ship, the length of the cruise ship, each zone is divided, zone one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and the mechanicals are in the center of the ship, and they service up and down. So the logistics of cleaning a mechanical system is all vertical. And it poses all sorts of issues with respect to getting the equipment to the proper places. Instead of setting up on one floor, you have to set up on multiple floors with multiple people. And the air handlers are enormous. They're just gigantic. They're massive. On that ship, there were 87 air handlers on that ship. And there were over 2,000 individual rooms that had to be cleaned. And then another 1,000 spaces that had to be cleaned through a seven-step process. Interesting. And the, the, um, give us some idea of the size of this ductwork. Is this something, you know, especially the verticals, is this something that your people could get into or is it something you had to clean remotely? No, it's the, these are fairly large systems. For example, a typical unit might be, the unit might be 20 foot by 15 foot by 15 foot high. The ductwork initially coming off of it is not as large as you think. They might be coming up with 36-inch round, 
40-inch round. Uh, on the ships, because it's not a, an office or a business environment, they can use much higher pressure to push through the duct system. So that means you could have smaller ducts, higher pressure. Noise uh, in the rooms is a much less of a concern. So you could have higher noise levels in the rooms on a cruise ship, and that means the duct works uh, smaller. However, the air going through the duct is just racing. It races through those duct systems. So the supply systems don't capture as much debris because of the speed of the air, but the returns and the units themselves will. And all, of course, on cruise ships, all the work is stainless steels, which makes accessing it very difficult. Interesting. Tom, I'd, I'd like to go into more detail on, on the mechanical systems cleaning as we get into further into the show. But before we do, let's, let's go back to Rusty for a minute and, and talk a little bit about, if you would, Rusty, how do you get these kind of projects? Do they just come to you or you know, because you guys are big and people know of you? Or do you actively go out and try and, you know, pull these kind of jobs in? Or is it a combination of both? Yeah, no, it's certainly a combination of several things. I think, you know, more of the, uh, the companies who provide services to cruise ships are typically based out of Europe than, than the U.S. Uh, if you remember years and years ago, Belcour was, was based out of Europe. So they had a very good relationship with, with shipbuilders and many of the cruise operators and uh, was able to, to maintain those relationships. So, you know, we, we, we still have many of those relationships and we're counted on. Uh, and because of our footprint, uh, you know, we're, we're able to provide help really around the world. So, you know, we have an office in Japan, we have offices throughout Europe, we have offices in the UK, uh, needless to say, US and Canada. So wherever the cruise ship happens to be, uh, chances are, you know, we, we're, we're not too far away uh, and we, we'd be able to begin the process. And then, you know, we, we bring in the, the support people to help. So It's kind of a unique situation in that these cruise ships, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, are, are, they may be licensed in one country, they may be located in another country, and may be headed to a third country. How do you determine um, whose rules you follow, especially for something like this? Yeah, so uh, obviously, you know, if the, if the ship is docked, then we're following the rules of that particular country. But if the ship is moving, and we've done that, where ships have been damaged, and we've sailed from, say, the Virgin Islands to, um, uh, I think we went to France or Germany, maybe at one point, we, and we did a lot of restoration during the sail. Um, you know, as you move through and near different countries, you've got different rules and regulations as it relates to the different water laws. So uh, we're, we're cognizant of that. We get informed of that from the owners of the, the ship. And obviously, we're not operating the ship. So, you know, the, the, the crew of the ship is, is giving us a lot of guidance and advice about what we can and we can't do. Uh, but it's when you do that, it's, it, it becomes a much bigger challenge, right? Because you're not just sending people onto the ship for the day and then they go home at night. They, they're on the ship and then they, they stay there uh, and they, you know, they sleep there and they have breakfast there and they have dinner there. And they, they, there's a lot of interaction with, with the crew, our crew and the cruise ship staff. Um, and there's really not, you know, you, 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 
once you're at sea, you can't say, I don't feel like doing this anymore. I want to go home. Uh, just, you know, that's not one of the options. Uh, so, uh, you know, you, you, once you commit to start it, you, you got to finish. Once, when it comes to health and safety regulations for your guys, whose who's health and safety regulations do you have to follow? Well, we follow the OSHA health and safety standards, which are, are probably the more uh, assertive ones uh, that are out there. But having said that, you know, health and safety is a very big uh, priority for us at Belcor. Tommy is extremely knowledgeable uh, in that area. We have our own health and safety directors. So uh, on, on many of those, those uh, you know, those projects, we're sending a health and safety person but you know, health and safety always starts at the top, and Tommy runs these 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 jobs. And every morning, the discussions start out with health and safety, and and they end the day on health and safety. And nobody getting hurt is is the main priority. So, um, you know, having proper PPE and respiratory equipment protection and all those sorts of things are absolutely a priority. And you know, we're we're not about to put our people at any risk. So we we probably overdo it a little bit, but that that's how we prefer to do it. Okay, Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, uh, thanks, Jeff. Rusty, in terms of the, of the pricing for this particular project, uh, certainly uh, you had to bid the job, and and you know from what the uh, the articles in the newspaper said, you know there were you know, multiple companies uh, noteworthy that were also bidding the project. Did you have to give a fixed price at the beginning? Or did you have to give like a you know a price sheet you know with you know the schedule of, of how you charge for comparison because I I guess you know they want to know what it's going to cost or how your price is compared to others so I don't need to know the price I don't need to know the specifics I, I just want to know the parameters. Yeah, so you know typically Cliff, we're either doing rate material or we're doing fixed price. And but and so I can't give you a, a real straight answer on this one. Is we did bid it, we did have a fixed price and, and was awarded the job. But if you go back to that period in time, right, it was when COVID really became a big deal in the states. Right, it's not right. like we think of it today. Right. So the the you know all of a sudden we had a couple cruise ships with people that were sick on it, and we had right, some right. people in the U.S. that were kind of maybe possibly could have contracted COVID. It, it didn't become the big deal that, that, it, that it ultimately became. So what was required of the ship um, shifted and changed uh, probably every couple of days uh, and, and can continue to shift from, you know, what was supposed to be uh, relatively, you know, minor house cleaning and disinfecting into something much grander. So, um, you know, the scope changed, consequently, the, the, uh, the price changed. But, you know, it's, it, uh, the other thing, obviously, with, with projects like this, it's not just about price, it's about speed, right? How fast can you get it done? So, uh, you know, we know we had some competitive prices that were less than us, but they were talking about a much grander period of time to get the projects done. And, Understood. you know. Uh, well, poor, poor Tommy, you know, I don't think he took a step on the boat. And the first thing they said is, you know, how come you're not done yet? You know, right, right. you've been here three minutes. It should be well, did they, did they give you some sort of blueprint? 
prints or whatever so that you can kind of, you know, look at the square feet or the cubic feet or look at the mechanical systems and that sort of stuff before you bid it? Tommy can be real specific on that, but what they did, I mean, we, we had some, some, you know, we had a pretty good idea of the footprint of the ship and, and, and of course we have a lot of experience. Like I said, we've done other Understood. ships. So Understood. our guys that know that world, uh, we're very familiar with what to look at and what to consider and what questions to ask to make sure that they got the right information. Mm -hmm. Good. Thanks. Yeah, Tom, you were telling me how, um, every nook and cranny is documented and numbered. Could you relay a little to listeners about how detailed your, your scope was, I guess, and, and also how detailed the, uh, the, the drawings or the, you know, the, the rooms and the numbering of the rooms and so on. Yeah. I, I thought it was actually really cool. Um, we were working with the company that we work with all the time called CTEH. They were the oversight company. Um, what they did is they, their job was to make sure that we were doing our job and report back to the cruise ship. So there was the entity, the cruise ship entity had their folks. The CTEH was overseeing all of the Belfort activities for the Japanese Ministry of Health. The first thing that was just kind of blew me away is they had a computer system that they detailed uh, all 2,000 rooms. Every room in the cruise ship has a very specific designation. That's the way the cruise industry is. But not just the rooms themselves. Every storage closet, every mop closet has a designation that shows what floor it's on, what's, what part of the zone it's in. And so it's like 7302-10. Well, what happened is, is that they, they, they took every single space and had it into a master computer program and the Japanese Ministry of Health had approved that if we went through this seven or eight step process for each, every individual space, and then documented it through photo documentation, that that would likely reduce all the COVID. But the project was moving so fast that the actual clearance criteria wasn't absolutely known by the Japanese Ministry of Health because they were going to do genetic testing inside the rooms inside 11 specific randomly picked rooms. So what happened is they, the, the Japanese Ministry of Health developed the protocol with the CDC and other entities that was accepted by the cruise ship, by Belfort, by CTEH. That's how the pricing came about, what needed to be done. These were multiple steps. And what ended up happening is because of the timeline had been shortened, even shorter than we had originally bid the project, we were doing the project to the seven steps as these test rooms were being tested. So after about a week and a half, the 11 test rooms were tested. It took another four days for the genetic sampling to come back. And so while we were actually doing the ship, it was actually the, the, uh, the testing finally came back. We all, all these concerns, the ship folks and everybody were all working in one gigantic kind of area where you normally get your luggage and stuff. Uh, it's the setup area. And basically the bottom line on it was, is that uh, they, they, the tests came back and they said, yes, everything's passed. So this, this company, what they would do is they had a team of, of people, cell phones, live database. And at the end of each day, they could tell you exactly what step each space was on the room. It was very, very impressive. 
and then we would interact with them continually during the process. You know, what were the seven steps? Go ahead. Yep. Well, the first one was the one I thought was remarkable. I mean, we'd go into the meetings every day. And the first one was when the folks were asked to take off their ship, like Rusty says, this was in the beginning. So no one knew anything at all. Mm -hmm. So all the Delph were going there. They just went you know, on a, on a faith and a prayer. And when we got over there, joke about safety. I mean, uh, you didn't even want to sneeze in that main room that you were having your temperature checked on. If you sneezed, you were pulled off the line. I mean, it was not good. So one of the healthiest places you could be. But the steps started out that when those folks, because the, the risk level was so high, when those folks were taken off the ship, everyone had to leave their cell phones and people left their passports on the ship. Now, don't ask me what happened to the passports because I could not find out. But I do know that as the project was going on, hundreds and hundreds of iPhones were being taken off the ship and these things were going to be returned. So the steps were all the rooms were left with everyone's everything in there. And so there was one specialized group that would take uh, people's personal belongings. That group was a special group, you know, defined to just take those belongings out. Then, all, then the next step would be that all the linens had to be removed. And that was a multi-step process. Certain linens had to go one way. Uh, porous materials had to go another way. And everything was taken off of the ship and staged off. So it all got pulled off the ship. And of course, this created amazing logistical problems. It was just extraordinary to see the, the, just the amount. You're talking about taking 2,000 rooms worth of stuff down in just a matter of a couple of weeks of, of uh, you know, with a team of people. And then from there, the decontamination process started, which was everything had to be wiped down. First of all, it had to be dosed with the approved solutions. Then it, it certainly wasn't just sprayed down the room. Every surface, every touch point, everything had to be wiped down in accordance with the protocol, that seven-step protocol that the Japanese Ministry of Health was approving. From there, it had to be that all the carpets had to be decontaminated. All the air conditioning system, then the air conditioning folks went in, us, my, my, the air conditioning division went in dismantling the terminal units, uh, removing the exhaust uh, uh, in cruise ships, they have like an exhaust bonnet inside the room, cleaning those ducts going, even cleaning those ducts going out in the event that the virus had gotten up into the first six, eight feet of, of that, cleaning, cleaning that back, then wiping down again, and then testing the, this, the, the testing the rooms themselves, and then putting the, everything back together again. So the, that, and that each one of those steps, I've never seen anything like it, quite frankly. You, know, you hear about, but it's like each one of those steps was documented and there was absolutely no space on that ship that was not touched and went through that step, seven step process. Interesting. Tom, what, what about mattresses? And uh, I would imagine there's couch cushions and things like that. Um, were they decontaminated or were they just going to remove and replace those? The, the mattresses, now, this is the best of my ability. The mattresses were not removed at that port, but they were going, they were decontaminated and then they were going to be replaced. That cruise ship ended up leaving the port on time, uh, which was, uh, you know, I, I've got to say to our folks, uh, Guy Sullivan, Guy Bataro, Kirk Lively, just everyone that worked on this, this project, Rusty, of course, uh, that 
you know, we had originally uh, bid the job about uh, with another 10 days on it. And the Japanese folks, uh, the Japanese ministry uh, wanted this, the ship, that, that cycle time shortened by 10 days. So we actually got everything done 10 days earlier than we had originally bid the job. Once the ship left the port, then what ended up happening is it went to another location in Japan and everything, those things from my understanding were all going to be replaced anyway, but they were decontaminated for that process. So, so that anyone could work on the ship after that point. Interesting. Uh, Cliff, let me turn it back to you. Thanks. Okay. Uh, did you have any input into the specifications from the, uh, you know, Japanese Department of Health at all? Yes. Okay. Especially on the air conditioning side. Gotcha. Because the air conditioning side, um, the process itself was originally designed for the, is semi-designed for the norovirus. And uh, we had to have input on it because, let me give you an example. If, if someone said to you tomorrow, listen, we need you to bake 2,000 birthday cakes. And, uh, and here's the contract. You have 2,000 birthday cakes to bake, but we cannot procure any flour worldwide. There is no flour left anywhere in the world. Uh, there's no eggs left anywhere in the world. And you have to get all that stuff yourself somehow. That is ver very close to what actually happened to us. We could not get any respirators into the country at all. We, we had people telling us they could give us 50 PAPRs, uh, send us 60 PAPRs, but we already knew from projects prior to that that there were no respirators available worldwide, none. And so what ended up happening is, you can imagine someone said, uh, I think it was Guy Bataro said, uh, we'll, we'll, what we'll do is we'll pull respirators from every office we have worldwide and or flour Okay, and we'll send everyone in with five bags of flour. So when they get there, you'll have enough flour that you can make all the cakes. That's exactly what we did. Every employee came in. We had people come in from 19 countries. So every person that came in was sent respirators from alternate offices just so that we would have enough respirators so that we could work on the ship. And that was, that alone was an unbelievable thing to experience and see. Hey, you talk How did about you handle the, the language? You know, communication. Those who put aside more tatatachi master. Thought we learned nineteen languages in three yeah. weeks. <laughs> please, please tell me what we need to do. Understood. Understood. We had the greatest, really the greatest people. I mean, really a beautiful thing to to do, be involved in. And, you know, being with Belfort, it's you know. It, the, you only get to do these projects when you're with a company like Belfort, quite frankly, and I'm so mm -hmm. proud to be part of it. But the language was a massive problem, and, uh, and we solved it. The our our you know our coming from 19 different countries. For example, my team, uh, the team just for the HVAC uh, was we had 21 people there doing HVAC, uh, plus the ship's crew helped out as well on the units, and only two people could speak the language. And so you have to use, you know, this trickle down effect. You have to have, you know, develop your relationships with your key people, make sure they understand what's got to go on. The safety requirements were so far off the scale. Uh, you know, it was, 
be like beyond any asbestos or any job that you would encounter. First of all, you know, like I told you about the flower, the Tyvek suits were a massive problem to get as well. You know, you have, uh, for, for example, I mean, just getting the Tyvek suits there, you remember that it was kind of a panic going on. So no one even wanted to come down to the port with any supplies. No one, no one in the country of Japan wanted to actually come to the port. Even getting daily food down there was an issue. But the thing about it was, on the safety side, we the Tyvek suits, for example, an XL Tyvek suit in Japan, that's like a small here. I mean, <laughs> and so, you know, we were struggling getting a little bit larger equipment. And then the, the protocol from the Japanese Ministry of Health required three pairs of gloves going on every time we went on the ship. Wow. So find three pairs of gloves for each person, 190, 200 people at one time, as high as 225 people, just getting the amount of supplies needed. Getting on the ship, not only did we have to be scanned in, you know, we had a, we had a scan in on the ship's pr provision, so the ship needs to know you're going on, just like any cruise you go on, they give you name badges. Then you get donned up. Then the Japanese minister, then our folks, our Belfort safety folks are there making sure, taping you up, putting on the gloves. Then you get checked again by the Japanese Ministry of Health for face seals, all of that. Then you finally get on the boat. So it's 45 minutes to get on the boat. Coming off the boat, every single person had to step in a, in a disinfecting solution, uh, be wiped down. There's teams of people wiping us down, removing the gloves. They, you couldn't remove your own gloves. They had to remove the gloves for you. It was quite a process. So at one point, I think I calculated out of a 12-hour day, we were getting six hours worth of work. Hmm. You know, Tom, you, you also mentioned, uh, well, let's go back to the, the three pairs of gloves. What, were they all nitro gloves, or did you have nitro and then something else and something else? Well, in the, certainly in the beginning, they, we had people scour through the entire city, of Yokohama and bought every single glove that, you know, waterproof glove that they could find because there, 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 there just was no supplies. Uh, but the reason why the three pairs were, if you were working in a, what we had some rooms that were, had active COVID patients in them. Uh, so, so active COVID rooms were rooms that had people who had contracted the COVID. And then we had, and CTEC had all this defined on their massive database. So we, we had specific rooms that had COVID. In those rooms, it was required that you couldn't even come out of that room unless you donned off that upper layer of gloves and, okay. and your, your, your uh, boots. The boots had to be completely disinfected and wiped down before you were allowed to leave the room. Hmm. So uh, there was a process to come out of that room. And so the, the, the two nitro gloves plus the upper glove, that upper glove had to be removed for anyone who was working in a COVID room. Did, did your people have to take a COVID test to get onto the ship? I mean, were they screened in that way before being allowed to do this work? Well, every morning, um, the, all the crews were bussed from the hotel. Uh, you know, you had to find a hotel that was willing to, to, yeah. to you. That's, you know, logistical, like, oh, yeah, we're comfortable with having all you people on the cruise ship come back to the hotel at night. But Belfort got these rooms all lined up. And we would all get on chartered buses in the morning. Everyone would get on a chartered bus. Everyone had their respirators. But that team 
really was being checked as soon as we'd get to the job site. I, I think we got picked up at 6.30 in the morning. You get to the job site, you get in line, and then there were folks in the, in the main area that would take your temperature. So your temperature was taken uh, every day, every night, to see if you had any temperature or if you had any symptoms whatsoever. I mean, once you were initially cleared to come on, then you just maintain that if you had any changes in your health whatsoever. And we really didn't. Uh, we really didn't. You know, we had a few little incidents that had nothing to do with COVID, but the, the, the health issue was was good. And then once you uh, once your temperature was written down, which you had to go to the Japanese Ministry of Health, the temperature of every crew person every day, uh, then you were allowed to go out and don up and, and get get into your work team and go on the boat. Interesting, Tom. All right, let's stop here for a moment. We want to thank our sponsors. We'll be back in uh, 90 seconds with Tom Yacobellis and Rusty Amarante talking a little bit about high-profile COVID-19 projects. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at IAQA.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. ACGIH, advancing the careers of professionals working in the environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety communities. Interested in defining their science at ACGIH.org. And our newest sponsor, the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Healthy workplaces, healthier world. Learn more at AIHA.org. Cliff, I'm going to turn it over to you. Tom, how did you get all the specialized equipment and all the chemicals and so on and so forth to Japan? Did you rely on, you know, a commercial airline? Did you rent an airliner to take it over or did you, you know, ship it over? How did you do it? Well, the, the ship itself, the folks on the shipyard, they actually, this was a blessing, but they, they had the specific uh, chemical that they wanted us to use. And it was Understood. only... Um, there was, so that that was good because they had enough there, just enough, by the way. We couldn't get any more than we had. Okay. That became an issue. We had to monitor really closely the mixture ratios and what we were using because we had calculated. It was one of these deals where it's like, we have just enough to do the whole ship, okay. so don't waste it. And it was, there were days where it was like, we think, it, we think there's something wrong here. Right. Uh, as far as the equipment was concerned, for example, Cliff, I know that 
you're interested in this kind of stuff too, but we couldn't get any electrostatic foggers at all to fog the mechanical system. So we had to go into the local community and I too, Bill, uh, had made videos on, I, I used, uh, this is just one little story, but you know, we bought little air compressors and we bought these automotive atomizing nozzles so that we can inject lots and lots of, of you know, particleized product into some right. of the mechanical systems. That was just for the mechanical systems. Mm -hmm. But as far as Belfour was concerned, the, the big thing was carpet cleaning machines. At one point, every single carpet had to be cleaned in the ship, I believe, because it was the last step of the process. I think every single carpet in the ship had to be cleaned within a three-day period. Uh, three ships going around the clock. Frankly, it seemed impossible. I mean, the Belfort project managers, Guy, Guy Sullivan and, and, uh, and Neville uh, and Singapore and his entire group, and I, I'm forgetting people, but they're just amazing. And so what they did is they were able to procure, uh, Neville out of Singapore was able to procure 20 brand new carpet cleaning machines. Mm -hmm. They were delivered in from everywhere. Uh, and it was just pull wherever you could pull the stuff from. It, it was not an easy task. By the way, um, the respirators that we thought we were going to get, they really never arrived until the job was over. So if we hadn't done the logistics, what we did, uh, it, it, we wouldn't have been able to get the job done. Still tough to get respirators. Yeah. What about, what about Tyvek uh, suits? Are they still tough to get? There was a big supply that they had that originally came out of uh, Singapore and Japan. Jap uh, J um, uh, Koji was our Japanese counterpart, and he was an amazing. Koji well, is a Belfour employee, and he's a consultant now for us. But Koji um, worked on projects with him around the world, Mexico on the Honda plant, and different areas. But Koji was, uh, he was the one that had the, we had about 40 Japanese workers there and he was the one that we would get a lot of the procurement supplies from. He arranged for the buses, all the, the meals, uh, you know, to keep the people fed, just keeping people fed was, I have to say it was probably one of the biggest problems that we had is keeping people fed. You mentioned when we talked how difficult that was and, and how the food was uh, not the best, huh? Well, <laughs> I don't want to be nice here, but you know what, what was happening was the food was the food was basically the first week or two. We had you know uh, these little sandwiches that were veg some of them, most of them were vegetarian sandwiches. We would eat that for breakfast. We would eat that for lunch. That's all we had to eat for a while, and the food was an issue. I tell you project like this you've got to have good food i mean it's just like it's just like the military and it really started wearing on people uh, and so we had to do some really quick quick rearrangements to try to get some some solid food in there and it, eventually we caught up but we were moving so fast that uh, you know you just can't eat the same thing each day and uh, it just doesn't work out so if any anything was a problem, it was that. Eventually, you know, I mean, you're talking about the whole project only took about three weeks, but, and you're trying to get buses and everything else lined up. So it's like, as long as you had some food coming in, you're kind of happy. 
I, I had to go to some extreme efforts to make sure my team uh, was good. And, and it, so we ended up lining up some other food arrangements as time went by. Tom, you mentioned breakfast and lunch. Were you able to eat at, at the hotel or any local restaurants no. open? No, no the, hotel, the hotel would not let us uh, eat, have breakfast or lunch or anything there. No, we would get up in the morning, get on the bus and go. And then you had to eat. You really had to eat there. They, they would not, allow, you know, you could imagine the psychological concern. This hotel, several of the hotels had other folks in it. They were taking a big risk because we didn't know a lot of the stuff. So, no, we couldn't eat there. And at night, we couldn't eat there either. So you you get back, you know, we leave at 630 in the morning. We get back about 8 o'clock at night. Uh, some, of the, some of the Belfort leadership team, you know, would stay at the job site even later than that. And then, um, you know, it was a lot of Raymond noodles and just stopping there's little 7-Elevens and stuff. You can pick up some food and kind of got into a little routine. Um, I, I tell you, that the thing that was really uh, stretched the abilities a little bit is that we had an entire team back in the U.S., Kirk Lively, Mitchell Parks, Guy Sullivan, I mean, Guy Bataro. And every single night we had to have a conference call also with with our whole management team, administrative team, lawyers. And uh, so that call would take place, but because of the time change, you know, nine o'clock at night was about 6.30 or seven in the morning here. And that went on every day. So after you were done, then we had this kind of debriefing call late at night. And, you know, people on one side are tired, people on the other side are just getting up, you know, very early. And uh, so that just added to the, the fun. Cliff, Cliff's having, you know, an office in uh, a couple offices in Japan was was a very big deal to help us with this process because there probably wasn't a day that went by that I wasn't talking to our our offices there and they were helping, you know, coordinate PPE and and obviously Tom mentioned food and busing and all those sorts of things. So. Having already been established there and having a base there and somebody that, you know, was part of the family that we could count on and depend on, uh, uh, really made that task uh, a lot easier. How many many offices do you have in Japan? Uh, We have two in Japan. Okay, interesting. All right, Cliff, go ahead. Um, Tom, were there any cultural issues that, caused problems over there, um, you know, either with Japanese culture or work ethic or, you know, what was really different? Um, there wasn't really time for that. Uh, okay. I understand what you're saying. As you know, uh, Cliff, as, when you're that busy, everybody's working hard and it's, we just have to get this done. You know, we're all, maxed out there's no time for nonsense that the only cultural issues were i think the biggest cultural issue was the food you know mm-hmm. you you have uh, you know a, a large team from japan that's they're perfectly fine with the types of food and it just doesn't sit well with other people i don't think they understood that at first i mean it, it came out later but as far as any internal cultural issues, they, there really wasn't time for it. Everybody was just on, we'll do whatever we got to do to get this thing done. And remember, you got to remember that every single person that came to that job site volunteered to go. 
So they knew into. We had a big contingent out of uh, Canada that I was very, very appreciative of. Just wonderful people. And so everyone that came in, they knew. They're, you know, they're the risk takers. They're the ones that'll drop everything on a dime and go. And, uh, and so, you know, you, you have that level of camaraderie. No matter what culture you come from, you know that that's the, a common theme between all of you. Tom, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the um, mechanical systems cleaning, and I know that's, that's your area there. And, and when we talked the other day, you mentioned that um, because of the fact that you're getting this seawater and, you know, a high relative humidity and salt content uh, in your makeup air as or your outdoor air coming into your units, they have special filtration. Just It, it starts with that special filtration and then works its way back to the unit. Can you talk to listeners a little bit about how you cleaned a mechanical system like that and, you know, on a, on a ship? Well, there on, on other cruise ships, for example, um, we had one where a cruise ship was one month old and it, it sailed and the, the filters that filter out the seawater there, you don't want really even want to call them filters, but they're, uh, I forget the name of them right now, but, there are specialty filters. They work exactly like a grease hood filter works, where they whip air around a plastic cartridge. They, they whip air around it so quickly that the seawater cannot, it separates from inertia, and it, it, it just drips out. So the outside air, if you ever see the ports along the top of a ship, you know, people put them on their cars to look cool. Well, those ports are the fresh air intakes for the mechanical system. There are usually 10 or 12 of them up there. And the seawater comes into those and it gets separated from the outside air. Well, if those aren't working correctly in this one particular ship, the seawater pulls into the system. And in this, that ship, what ended up happening is in a very, within a month, there was the seawater dries out and huge salt crystals form inside the stainless steel ductwork. Uh, the ship that I'm thinking about right now, and I'm talking about the stainless steel ductwork would have been protected, but the shipyard, had, uh, there was construction debris left in some welding rods, pieces of metal, little pieces of, you know, uh, steel that were in there. And what ended up happening is the salt corroded the steel. And within a month, the inside of the ductwork had rusted areas of it on top of the stainless steel. So the question is, how do you clean that? Well, in that particular case, we put a crew on the cruise ship and they sailed with that cruise ship, I think, it was 23 or 28 cycles. So you have to, it's a brand new ship. They're not going to stop the ship for you. That's one thing about the cruise industry. They don't stop for anything. Although right now they're stopped. Um, and so we, you sail with the cycle and the, the, to get into those systems, they all have to be crawled. You have to get into the mechanical systems. You try to cut as few, as few access openings as possible because you're cutting into stainless steel and you, you need to cut into stainless steel while the cruise ship's sailing, while there's people there. Noise is an issue. Um, and so we went in and we actually uh, de decontaminated all of the mechanical systems. They upgraded the filtrations. And in that particular case, it was cleaning the fresh air intakes back to the units and the, the units themselves. All those units are stainless steel, by the way. And how are they insulated, Tom? Well, I guess the fresh air intakes don't have insulation, but once you get to the, the supply side and your mechanical, you know, your air handling unit itself, is it like a double wall and you've got insulation in between? How do they insulate those? 
some of it is the the units will be double wall line but a lot of the engineering is designed so that the supply ducts is be running through a conditioned space so insulation is not required at that point i, I see mean, units are like hugely hugely oversized so that they can handle these you know you, you go out to sea and you get 90 percent humidity 100 percent humidity they've got to be able to handle that that the that enormous load uh capacity and then at one point it might you might have 100 percent humidity and the next day wherever it's sailing it might be you know 40 percent so it's just a huge wide, wide range and so there's not a lot of external insulation in in those areas and no internal insulation i would imagine no no okay. because you know the the air rushes through these things i mean it's screaming through right so you you know it's it's like a commercial system or industrial system plus because the air is just screaming through these things because the higher the pressure of the air and the faster you move it the smaller the duct well the whole key to cruise ships is you've got to fit a lot of ducts in a small space so smaller ducts are better so you increase the fan strength and the speed i see and what about um did you have to get your your duct cleaning equipment i i, I would assume you had to get that on board as well so that you well, we, the thing about it was is that most in this particular case everything really had to be hand wiped down all the okay. units had to be hand wiped down i mean we you know negative air machines the, the uh, belfort had negative air machines there that we could utilize uh and and but but most of the decontamination process was HEPA contact vacuuming and then applying the solution and then hand wiping down. All the units had to be hand wiped down. The, the supply plenums had to be hand wiped down. The, uh, the terminal units in all the rooms had to be hand wiped down. So a lot of it was done by hand. I see, and, and you probably had to cut quite a few access points. The, the access points that we made were mainly in the return air duct side because the filtration is so good in these units that the risk of anything being in the supply duct, the only place that you'd really have high levels of accumulated particulate, or you know, uh, which which could promote or, or which could carry the virus for a short period of time, was in the return sides. And in the return sides of the ship, they were, they did have high high amounts of particulate that we would vacuum out, and then we would have various access along the line back to the main systems. I see. And what about the coil cleaning, Tom? What just typical coil cleaning like you do here in the states? Yeah, standard the uh, standard coil cleaning. But you had but the coils. I have to say that the coils. You know, these units are really pretty clean to start with. Uh, right. You know, you open them up and they're like, oh, okay, these look pretty good. Uh, and for me to say they look pretty good is saying something. Yes, so <laughs> the, the units look good. Very little particulate accumulated, but you have to go through the entire process. So you got to go through the coil cleaning, and this is where the ship themselves uh, were were instrumental in in helping out in this area because they were so familiar with the unit. So went through the coil cleaning process, then the application of the disinfection, and then the wipe down of the units themselves. Got it. Okay, let's let's go to the roundup, John. I'm, I don't know if I caught you by surprise there or not, but we're going to go to the roundup. We're going to ask another question or two, and then we're going to wrap this up. Great job, guys. Let's take it over. Cliff, why don't you take one of the final questions here? Okay, actually, I have three questions, but I can accept 
expect one word answers on these questions. Okay. <laughs> Quest, question number one, you had these guys that were all suited up for hours and hours. Question number one is, did adult diapers come into play? No, but that was an issue. Okay. Uh, question number two, were any temporary uh, workers involved with, you know, the actual cleaning process or were they all Belfour staff? Uh, I believe they were all Belfour staff. Okay. And question number three, and I'm not sure if you know the answer to this or not, is do you have any idea how old the ship was? No. Okay. No year, problem. Thank you very ago. much. Okay. Rusty? Uh, yeah, I don't know. the. I, I want to say the ship was relatively new, but I don't really have any basis for, for saying that. But there were so mm -hmm. many discussions about it. Tom, I'd like to talk, and I don't know, Rusty, if you know or not, but let's talk a little bit about the clearance process after you did a room. Um, I assume there was a visual inspection by one of the people overseeing the project. They had to go through their checklist, make sure all seven steps were taken. Did they also take samples of some kind, and how was that handled? What kind of analysis? Again, the... The 11 rooms that were set up were going to follow the, the strict protocol set by the Japanese Ministry of Health. Uh, and that, that protocol, if it proved the, the testing of that, the genetic analysis, both live and dead virus of the space, after those steps were taken, the, 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 because the shortness of time for the project required really unconventional thinking, it was, if we can... If we know that those 11 rooms passed and we know that we're okay with the process, that confirms the process now, right? So then right. what, and the only thing we can do with the limited amount of time is confirm that that process was absolutely done on every other space room in the entire ship. So it was those 11 rooms that were a critical element. And then this CTEH company absolutely confirming and not leaving any stone unturned that every other space and surface was done to the same protocol. Did they do any like ATP testing or was it all a visual inspection after, after the 11 rooms were done? It was, uh, there was no, not that I knew of. I did, I didn't see any ATP testing. Okay. So they would do. I don't know how much value that would have even had in that particular situation. No. Uh, but, were they right. there watching over your guys as they were cleaning or would they just come in? Oh yeah. yeah. They had 20, they had, I think they had like 30 people embedded into the teams on the cruise ship. So they were on the cruise ship embedded in the teams. They had their, their administration team in the main warehouse with our administration team. And then back home, they actually had, um, of course I'm interested in this because I used to own a computer company, but, they had uh, a couple of live programmers on their staff that would make modifications specifically for the cruise ship to give reports and whatnot that they, we needed for live updates. Hmm. Interesting. And then, Rusty, I'm curious, in your experience, you've dealt a lot with these cruise ships. Um, how much more difficult was this cleaning than if you had just a, you know, a norovirus type of situation. Was it really uh, kicked up uh, several notches? 
Well, yeah, certainly it was kicked up a, a lot uh, because of a lot of the things that, that Tommy expressed. You know, typically getting our hands on PPE is, is not a challenge, right? It was a, a major challenge for us here. Typically dealing with food is, is not a challenge. It was a problem for us here. Uh, getting people to actually go do the work uh, was a, a much bigger challenge for us here. Getting people home. Uh, I, I think, Tommy, you, you got home like just in time. Had he waited yes. the day, right, you would have, you'd still yeah. be in Japan. Oh, right? that's the first yeah. guy, first guy, where the air conditioning portion finished up a little bit early. And I would, it, it was challenging to get out. We were certainly nervous about going through all the steps to try to get out because we were, you know, we were, our news reports where everything was shutting down and they were. Yeah. So, you know, all these things that were impacting the world had a, a, a very big impact on, on us, without a doubt. And, and it, was, it was part of those daily discussions that were, were being had and, and trying to make sure that, you know, we were in front of as many of the problems as we could possibly be. Um, and, and, you know, as I said, you know, we don't want to put our people at risk for, for anything, but you know, again, if you think back to that time, uh, you know, it, it, it was still even a little unclear at that point in time exactly how you may have contracted this. So, you know, all, all, the, all these things were, were played big, big factors in, in this and, and complicated things considerably. I, I wonder if both of you could, if you would, just give us, I mean, after you've been through this, process and dealt with this type of a project what kind of lessons not just for Belfour and for yourselves but for the industry the cruise ship industry the restoration industry the, the world in general what, what lessons have we learned that uh, we should make sure we, we remember well, I mean I can start and you know Tommy obviously uh, being the boots on the ground share his thoughts but you know, it's it's obviously no different than than any big event or any big project, right? Um, you know, after every hurricane, we learn something different. After, and we try to, you know, is this a one-off thing that we do not need to change in our protocols, or is this something that we need to implement in our protocols going forward? Um, every big building, right? Uh, you, you learn something different, um, you know, interior finishes, exterior finishes. So, you know, every, everything that, that you do, you know, we, we try to take the best learning experiences from them and, and apply it to the next one. Uh, without a doubt, we will look at future jobs now with, the, um, you know, with, with more questions and, and bigger eyes, uh, looking at these things because of what we've learned through this experience. So questions we may not have asked in the past or even thought about asking because it simply wasn't necessary. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be doing those things going forward. But uh, yeah, so, you know, there, there's no substitute for experience, right? And um, so every time you do one, hopefully you, you do it a little bit better. And, uh, you know, Tommy's being very humble with, uh, his knowledge and his experience. I mean, although I'm, I'm sure you guys are understanding just how knowledgeable a guy he is, but uh, you know, th this project would have never gotten pulled off uh, 
the way it did had it not been for, for Tom and a couple of the other project managers who and for well, everybody. But but the leadership is extraordinary and uh, the commitment's incredible and, and uh, Tommy's certainly one of our heroes in this situation. And uh, and Matt Hurrigan who runs, yeah. you know, or has a full environmental division. And it was Matt Hurrigan who made that connection with the CTEH folks. Mm -hmm. Matt Hurrigan, amazing, amazing guy who runs our environmental division. He's basically on every call, everything, every day. I don't want to forget anybody. And I just want to mention that some of our people who went home, uh, one of the on-site project managers, uh, Guido Gabio from Singapore, those guys went into quarantine for two weeks after. They couldn't even get home. They weren't allowed to return back to Singapore. Some of the people in Canada went into quarantine for two weeks too after. So there was an after effect as well. But uh, I hope I didn't forget anybody. Uh, I, I know Matt was a massive, massive part of this whole project. You know, one final question, Rusty. Just, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are as someone in your position we're looking at the potential or possibility of maybe a second wave coming this fall. And um, I think a lot of people after this first wave came through realize now that maybe we should have more things in reserve than what we've had in the past. Are, are you looking, I'm sure you and your team are looking at that. Um, what are your thoughts on the potential for this second wave? Yeah, no, we, we absolutely are looking at that. And we, we started that, looking at it a bit ago, you know, um, KN95 mass seems to be readily available. Um, um, you know, Tyvex have, have opened up and that's more available. Uh, but we don't want our coverage to be anywhere near fair, so we'll, we'll certainly stock up. N95 seem to still be the big challenge. We, we've been told by 3M that they will not make N95 as available to our industry uh, until December or January. Wow. So, uh, and, and we have found uh, some N95s throughout the world, uh, but they're, you know, they're going at about $10 a piece and, you know, a million dollar minimum or a, a million piece minimum. And, and it's all done remotely and it's all done, you know, nobody's going to write a check for $10 million for something that is a mask that you can't see or touch or feel and, and or the hopes that it shows up in a month. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think the big challenge is right now seems the biggest challenge anyway will be the uh, the N95 and uh, uh, and uh, but but everything else, as as I said, I think we uh, we're, we're very very well stocked now and will in increase our our inventory here in the time to come. Gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for joining us. That was a fascinating interview. We've got some nice comments from listeners. Uh, Tom, any final thoughts before we go? No, I just miss seeing you, Joe. It's great seeing you. And you too, Cliff. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Seeing Rusty too. <laughs> Rusty? Yeah, you too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. Good to final see you guys. Yeah. Great seeing everybody. Thanks so much. All right. Guys. Thank, Thank you. you all. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Rusty Amarante and Tom Yacobellis. Uh, Belfour is Ichiban, we called this one. Of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Um, next week, I've got AIHA folks coming on. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of their conference uh, 
sessions and a little bit more about the Green Book, the new recognition, evaluation, and control of indoor mold. So we look forward to having each of our listeners back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.